0: Testing, testing. Ma 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 One, two, one, two. Microphone checker. Microphone wrecker. Microphone pecker pecker. <laughs> All right, let's give this a shot. What is life? together that's fun just to come play play in the pot first what are we doing this is the turning of the bones podcast hello 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 welcome to another episode of the turning of the bones podcast it's so nice to be here spring in the northern hemisphere welcome you drooping daffodils you tumultuous tulips, you perky petunias, you fecund ficuses, welcome to another episode of the Turning of the Bones podcast. I am so excited to be here today. Colby Marie, if, you, uh, if you're if you just jumping in now, this is your first podcast, maybe go back and listen to some of the earlier podcasts, kind of acquaint yourself with, with the lore, the way the... Just the vibe of this podcast, there's a a special thing that I'm trying to do here, a bit of a a relaxing dive into what can be somewhat complicated or emotion or feeling-laden topics. I'm going to have a little sip of my brand new coffee I just got this morning. It is a warm spring day here, and I am fresh off of a trip to the desert I am dog-sitting this week, watching my neighbor's dog, Aoife. So Lily, Aoife, and I hopped into the truck. I got a new bedding set up for the back of my truck, so I was excited to check that out. got some memory foam. I cut it to fit the bed of my truck, and the sleeping was luxurious. We slept like a pack of wild animals in the desert. We went out and explored all the beautiful desert flowers that were blooming smell of sagebrush the just diversity that exists in the high desert out in Utah spent some time by the river and I'll tell you what the river is a metaphor for life or enlightenment or the journey of healing I just I can't express enough the profound I don't know serenity the lessons, the just sweet contemplative space that sitting by a river for a prolonged period of time can bring to me. I, I thought quite a bit about the story of Siddhartha written by uh, Herman Hess and how the character of uh, Siddhartha ended his life by the river. And I, I don't think that would be a bad way to go, just uh, getting your lessons from the river just amazing to watch the currents dance to watch the the waterfowl which is just a really unpleasant way to say gorgeous birds (laughs) Uh, i saw a i don't know what you would call it it was a group of about five white pelicans just floating together it it was surreal it looked like a, a carnival ride you know the swans you get to ride around the little boats at uh, some amusement parks and it was just nice I learned a lot I talked to a lot of people about rafting and floating the river about different types of rapids and it was just nice to get out and have some time alone meet some strangers walk about so I'm feeling fully recharged I got some good time in the Sun listen to some good tunes Explore some new dirt roads, so I'm I'm ready to jump back into this podcast on attention. I spoke last week kind of about the history of attention deficit disorder, uh, hyperactive attention deficit disorder, neurodivergence, neurotypical, and today I just uh, I'm gonna do a three part series, so there'll there'll be another episode that's about the contemporary work being done on attention. The physiology of it, the neuroscience of it, kind of where we're at with uh, pharmaceutical, biological, and behavioral approaches. Um, but I wanted to just pause and give give some context for why this is a pretty, it's an important issue to me uh, because, ooh, a little siren action in the background there. Speeding off. I'm just going to keep rolling through that today because I feel like we got a pretty good start going. And the city's going to be the city outside these windows. Things are going to happen, so that's part of not having a sound booth to record this in. So, the context for wanting to do this podcast was, in my life, contemporarily, is that I just... I heard a really great podcast with uh, some neuroscientists that were talking about attention, and it made me reflect about my experience in school, my experience being di- diagnosed with ADHD in the third grade. And so I'm going to tell this story in three parts. It's going to be like primary school, like primary and secondary, so through high school. It's going to be kind of college into young adulthood, and then it's going to be where I'm at today. And so I'll give the context for the diagnosis, and I wanted to give the caveat that a lot of this is, there'll be some anecdotes based off of what I learned going to get my master's in special education, the observations I did in schools, uh, working with students, with um you know, various diagnosis, whether it was mental health or neurodivergence or developmental disabilities. And then the reflection that kind of ensued for me about my life, you know, I think that when we get a label or a diagnosis, that it, it's something that we have a relationship with throughout our lives. So being diagnosed ADHD at a fairly young age, this is something I continue to revisit. It's kind of like gender, sexuality, uh, relationships. It's just something that I think if you've had this experience, if you're listening, you've had this experience, it's something that you continue to revisit. It kind of shapes your life for lots of reasons. So let's, let's wind back to the early days. And so when I was a child, my experience with schooling was uh, complicated to say the least. One of my earliest uh, childhood experiences, and oh, to give a little bit more geographical context, this happened in the Midwest during the 80s. Um, And so there'll be some, you know, some of the adults were ignorant and some of them were cruel in this story. I'll try to differentiate as I go along uh, when I talk about teachers, parents, There was just a lack of knowledge to a certain extent for a lot of people, and then there was just kind of willful guilting and shaming, and you'll all, as an intelligent audience, uh, will be able to sort that out. But it kind of started um, in preschool. Uh, If I look back, if I was doing a qualitative examination of myself objectively as a special education teacher in preschool, uh, I remember... Being very excited, like eager, eager, eager to go to school. Like I really loved being around other children. I loved how much stimulation there was. I loved all of the things to do. And I remember in preschool, I quite frequently would get into trouble. And I had a hard time with impulse control, and this led basically, um, the way this was handled was in preschool, there was a timeout corner, and so if you were naughty, you had to go sit in the timeout corner. Well, I had to go sit in the timeout corner so frequently that when they, when I graduated preschool, they gave out awards, and they gave me the award for Colby's Corner, and they forever named the the corner in the preschool after me, which, for most of my life was kind of like a funny anecdotal story but as I grew into adulthood I I realized that was pretty pretty messed up um that you know the response to a child having a hard time was to isolate them was to punish them and this kind of mirrors the punitive justice approach that I think a lot of you know my parents probably went through a lot of the ignorance you know that a child acting out was pathologized you know they were a bad kid you know remember in fidgety phil like the evil evil boy that kind of mentality and that if you punish them enough they would get into line and so i remember several different occasions being overwhelmed in social situations, you know, the complex dynamics, and I would be aggressive towards another student, and I would wind up in the corner. And basically looking back on that, all that was happening was I was overstimulated. Uh, The environment was too overstimulating. There wasn't enough structure. And so I had what I would say is a pretty normal reaction to that as a child. You know, children need consistency and routine. And inside of that preschool, that didn't exist. And so eventually I transitioned into elementary school where a lot of the problems really continued. Um, I had a really lovely teacher in first grade. I remember Miss Metals was just a sweet person who was kinda, she was kind. I remember yeah, just a lot of sweetness in first grade there was a lot of acceptance I don't remember getting into too much trouble but come second grade I had a different teacher who took a bit of a more authoritarian approach and I, I, I quite frequently had I knew at a young age that I had trouble in the school and I needed some help and you would have table partners and quite frequently work with your table partner and I really wanted a student named Jeremy Hammond to be my To be my desk mate and it it was one of those social sorting hats where you know everybody kind of vies for the student they wanted to sit next to and i think on some level i knew that jeremy was a good student and jeremy could help me with my work because i struggled so much in school um around this time maybe Within a year, I was diagnosed with a uh, speech impediment. I started seeing a speech pathologist to help me read. I would read into a tape recorder. Um, I struggled with math. And I was devastated when Jeremy Hammond picked somebody else to sit next to him in second grade. And I was so devastated that when I found out, I bit Jeremy Hammond. (laughs) And... At the time, I don't, I remember, you know, having to go to the principal's office and it kind of started to become this theme of me needing to go to the principal's office, my parents needing to come in, the challenges around my behavior really started. Um, And like any kid, you know, I would, I would act out, I would entertain, you know, uh, any tension is better than no attention. And so I would, kind of became the class clown. Um, I remember some pretty serious talks after biting Jeremy Hammond. And, and looking back on it, having become a teacher, you know, if a child is biting somebody, that's a pretty huge sign that they need a lot of support. And I didn't really get much. It was just kind of punitive. I had a talk. Apologized to Jeremy Hammond. I don't think he talked to me for the rest of my elementary and high school. Understandably, you know, I bit him. Um, and so on school went and I remember being in third grade and this was around the age where you could ask to go to the bathroom independently and I was like oh my god fucking freedom you know I had the hardest time sitting still in a chair uh, very compliance driven you know you sit in your seat you wait for the bell you go out to recess you walk in a single file line to your next class you go to the bathroom when the teacher tells you Um, and so I started asking to go to the bathroom a lot because I needed to move my body. It was really hard for me to sit still in chairs. Um, this is pre bouncy balls, fidget toys, and a lot of the messaging I got from the teachers was just that I was a problem, you know, like there was a lot of, you know, public humiliation from the teachers, like having me come up in front of class. I remember a teacher named Mrs. Althouse who was just cruel. Um, looking back on it you couldn't really excuse her for ignorance she was just a cruel woman she would have me come up and clap in front of class and belittle me in front of the other students you know and eventually that caught on you know the students knew that you know I was the class clown I was the fuck up and even if this stuff isn't explicit kids start to sort this out at a pretty young age you know they want to make the teacher happy Um, And I just remember that year being really hard, and I remember quite frequently I would go on these walks to go to the bathroom, and I would just get distracted, and I'd want to know what was going on in the fifth or sixth grade classrooms, like, what are they doing in there? And so I would be found in other wings of the school, and this led to my parents taking me to the children's hospital in Dayton to do a round of testing for ADHD, So after the testing for ADHD, I was placed on... It was pretty extensive testing, um, and I was placed on Ritalin, I think about in the third grade. So I was around 10 years old um, taking a a class A narcotic. And I think, you know, I, I don't really remember, you know, probably because I was on drugs but like I don't really remember a ton of improvement in my academics you know I remember fourth grade I think there's a a maturation that kind of happens around fourth grade like I kind of got I got the game I I knew how to play it I knew what teachers I could go to the bathroom when I could take my walks I knew which teachers I couldn't mess with I knew which teachers were safe and I sort of sort of started to figure out the game a little bit more in fourth grade and then around that time some of my teachers also thought that I might be gifted um and I was recommended for the gifted and talented testing um around third or fourth grade so basically if you were gifted you would go to a different school you take a bus with all the other smarties and you would uh go to uh A more creative learning environment. Um, A little bit more challenging, which was really great for me because I I quite frequently found myself bored in school, and it wasn't because I wasn't paying attention. It's just because a lot of the, you know, I would listen to the teacher say the thing, and I would kind of understand what they were getting at, and I didn't need to, like, fill out a worksheet and write the name in the box. Like, it just seemed pretty absurd to me from a pretty young age that, like, I could listen to you, I got the thing you said, and I don't want to write it on the, the fucking worksheet. And, um, so I was, I was tested for gifted and talented and I got in and I basically got in because of my ability to make connections and see patterns where there were not patterns. My creativity was pretty exceptional. Um, there was a story in my family that, you know, the tester was like, I've never seen anything like this my problem solving was really high. And I remember about that time that there was this, this sentiment that a lot of the teachers had that they would basically outright say, if you're as smart as this, these tests say you are, then you should be able to sit in your chair, which is completely absurd, right? Like intelligence has nothing to do with your ability to sit still, whether or not you're a visual or auditory learner, whether or not you're a kinesthetic learner. Like, I can learn anything if I'm able to move around. Um, But elementary school in the 80s, and still to this day, I mean, it's it's compliance-based. They're trying to train you to stay in line. And I was physically and neurologically incapable of sitting still. You know, I was developing the skills, but there were just teachers who would outright... Shame me about, you know, it was like they were angry that I was so smart. You know, they were like, I just remember feeling it like a lot of animosity from a lot of teachers and so i it was always like the the day that i got to go to the gifted and talented program was so great because the classroom would let me move around they had like different stations like learning stations in one room you know i could work on one project and go work on another one and come back to the first project um there was more hands-on support from the teacher and i remember really getting excited to go to that school um I also remember a lot of my students, like uh, my peers. They were pretty pissed. <laughs> I remember this one kid named Jonathan Scott, who was just uh, kind of an asshole at a young age, at a very young age, and he would just be ruthlessly mean to me and like be like, "You're too stupid to be here. Um, you know, you shouldn't you shouldn't be here." I mean, I remember him being brutal to me on the bus, and then getting all the other gifted and talented kids kind of on his side so it was like socially really they weren't my friends you know because these were all the students who you know had a lot of support at home with doing homework and like you know neurotypical for the most part good grades all honor roll um oh yeah i remember at a young age i uh oh god what was it, it was like first grade we got report cards and you would get uh checks check minuses and check pluses and some things and you would get grades in others and like my first my first grade when i had that really nice teacher i got like all a's i was like doing really great but i got kept off the honor roll for getting a check minus in handwriting and so i had pretty hard time uh writing as a child Uh, part of my neural divergence whether it's dysgraphia or dyscalculia like writing Cursive was, like, fucking impossible for me. I may as well have been trying to write Sanskrit. Um, But I got kept off the honor roll. You know, I tried so hard, and I got kept off the honor roll for a check minus in handwriting. And I remember just kind of, like, whether it was a message I got from my parents or if I came up with it on my own, I can't really remember. But I just remember knowing, like, first grade, I was like, this is bullshit. Like, this is absolutely make believe like my handwriting has nothing to do with my intelligence and I think that kind of stuck with me I I probably came a little bit antagonistic internally maybe to some teachers about that you know I just knew that all the marks were kind of made up I, I was socially super intelligent I could sort things out I knew how teachers had favorites I knew what the favorites did I knew that I wasn't going to do that or wasn't capable of doing that um, but anyhow, I was an honor roll student besides my handwriting in the first grade. And then it just, I kind of became disheartened. And so fast forward back to the Gifted and Talented program. Like, it didn't really matter to me that the other students were a little rough. Um, the teachers were so nice and like, it really, I felt like I could thrive there. You know, we were doing creative projects. We got to do a lot of hands-on stuff. It wasn't just filling out, you know, basically teaching in Ohio in the 80s was like worksheets, you know? You just had stupid worksheets. It was really piss-poor teaching. And so I would go to these, I'd go to these gifted and talented classes and I, I still had trouble focusing, you know? I wasn't able to just sit still for 15 or 20 minutes. I'd need to move around, but there was just a lot more support and I, I felt like I succeeded and I felt like encouraged. Um, one day I, uh, I got a little distracted and I snuck away and I knew there were some televisions and computers. There were some TVs hooked to computers the way they were in the 80s. And I figured out how to get the TV on without any sound. Um, and I knew that the space shuttle was launching that day. And so I, I turned off the computer and got the TV to play the space shuttle launch. And I was sitting in this like back corner where I could kind of hide And I I totally figured this out on my own and was just sitting there in the space shutter, the Challenger exploding. I remember just like screaming and like the teacher was like, what are you doing back there? I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, this Challenger exploded. I ran out and the teacher was like, no, they didn't. Just quit making stuff up. You're just looking for attention. And then like, you know, a minute later, the PA came on and the principal was like, everybody please report to the cafeteria. And we all went down there and watched the footage of the challenger exploding and i just remember sitting in that cafeteria and i was like i just didn't i was like i'm just not going to trust these teachers you know like i didn't do anything wrong you know like i was trying to tell you something that like once the principal told you you got the whole class together and walk them down to the cafeteria but I told you and you like personally attacked me and I just like really lost faith in teachers you know I lost my trust and I kind of I remember around that time like I quit trusting teachers like it would you would need to be a pretty special teacher to earn my trust you would need to be really patient you need to understand how smart I was and I also understand that like I had these challenges and so the rest of elementary school kind of moved along eventually the gifted and talented funding dried up and so they had to cut the numbers in half and I remember being really sad in fourth or fifth grade when I wasn't able to go to that program anymore except then I just had to stay in the same school building the same jerks Um, and I finished elementary school you know went on to middle school Um, I remember being in the honors English class Um, But by that time, like, I was just unable to sit still, you know, there was too many things going on socially, I'd get distracted, it was a new building, and so eventually I was kicked out of honors English, which was really sad too, because I really liked English and literature, I liked the stories, Um, but I couldn't, there was like this shift in middle school where you just had to sit and read, and that wasn't good for me, like, I needed to listen to it, I needed to able to like read and move or like not sit at a desk desks were horribly uncomfortable for me i was a huge child and i was growing really quickly and just physically they were super uncomfortable um but around that time i remember i i i I wanted to i'd started you know if you if you've ever taken an amphetamine you know that they really mess with your brain like they're kind of awesome for like a day or two you know you super focused get tons of shit done you're super productive it's like you're just like ah, you know um but after prolonged use like I started just like I couldn't sleep at night I had insomnia my whole childhood like I really I didn't sleep well starting from like the age five on and then I think the Ritalin really exacerbated that and eventually like in middle school I told my parents like I don't want to take this anymore like I just can't and so I quit taking Ritalin in middle school and you know I middle school was tough you know there were bullies there was like a gang of students who basically like took my lunch money every single day for a year it was just a really challenging time you know I would act out in class I you know would run through the halls I I was quite, you know, I was good friends with everybody in the office. The principal knew me. My parents would have to come in. Usually, my mom. I don't remember my dad coming in. Uh, but from a young age, you know, I, I sought attention. You know, if I wasn't getting good grades, I was going to get attention by making a joke. And I, I learned pretty quickly that, you know, adults are hypocrites a lot of the times, and especially teachers in the eighties. And if I watched long enough, I could let the adult know that I thought they were stupid by saying something really pointed and really just on point and the, the students liked me for that you know I was like brave enough to stand up to the teachers I was witty enough to make them laugh when I made fun of the teachers um, but every year I would say I had like one one teacher that was really sweet and like kind of took me in. I enjoyed their class middle school. I remember a couple of history teachers. We did a lot of projects and that was really good for me, the hands-on learning. And then uh, transitioned into high school and that was just a shit show. Uh, almost didn't graduate high school. Um, I got like a 17 on the ACT. I think I ended up with a 17, which is like a D average, but uh, you know, everything kind of just fell apart. My parents got divorced my freshman year, uh, so I lost... You know, the little bit of stability we had in the house. And then, you know, just... I just got in more and more trouble. You know, I, I saw through the teacher's bullshit. I had a larger vocabulary. I would, you know, there was just... You can only be shamed by a teacher so much as a teenager before you start standing up for yourselves. And in in high school there was just an, an endless supply of teachers who would be like, You're too smart to be behaving this way You know, you're you can't go to the bathroom anymore, you know, when I needed to like get up and walk around or do what today would be called a movement break for somebody with neural divergence. There was just kind of this endless amount of shaming neurally divergent humans you know people with who weren't neurotypical who didn't just fit into the line and i remember just thinking like well fuck this you know i'm not going to do it like there's no part of this system that supports me so I'm i'm not going to to do this work and there were some like shining stars, you know. There were like a few teachers in high school that really got me. They they knew how to support me. Uh, one of them, Fred McDougal, was like the teacher my mom was the most terrified of me getting, and he ended up being my favorite teacher. Like he knew, like he had me in a class. I was a freshman, and I was in there with juniors, you know. And if you're a freshman, that's a pretty intimidating experience, and I just. I really didn't give a shit you know like I would make fun of juniors I would (laughs) I would joke you know if I I would answer questions I wasn't like shy because I really liked the class and Mr. McDougal kind of had the right amount of structure and consistency like I knew not to push him and I also respected him because I could tell he was super smart Um, but he would like have me come work next to him he would like sit next to me while I worked he would let me move my chair just a lot of those little behavioral supports that help neurally divergent people. And I, I did really well. I ended up writing like a 35-page term paper for him my junior year on the CIA's involvement in Central America. And I was obsessed with this, you know. And this was kind of one of the first academic examples of like neural divergence, like my ability to hyperfocus when I was interested in something. Um, I could sit and read and read and read about the CIA, about the shady spy stuff. You know, I was was obsessed with spies. I was playing a role-playing game at the time, and I played it in middle school called Top Secret SI, and I was just obsessed with spies. I was obsessed with politics and government and shady dealings, and I just jumped all the way in, and I, I, like, destroyed that paper I I killed it it was amazing I remember getting my license and being so excited that I could drive to a college library to get books um and I also had a really good English teacher at the time who got me and let me move around the class would let me sit wherever I wanted to read um and I was just you know like I definitely have that uh you know with ADHD if it's something you're into, you can super focus on it, and I had that experience my whole life. Whether it was like baseball cards when I was younger, uh, role-playing games in middle school and high school, uh, spy stuff, I would just, I just would learn everything I could. Anecdotally, it's you know from a very young age, I didn't trust the government because I knew what the hell the U.S. was up to. Just not, just not on the up and up, United States. Not for a long time. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I barely graduated high school. I, I started, you know, I realized which teachers, you know, I, what limits I could push. I was pretty, I was really socially intelligent. I, I figured out where I could, you know, get by with things, started smoking weed. So I'd, you know, I remember a year I had art first period. I just get super high before art. It was awesome. But then I had chemistry second period, but chemistry, there was no way. I sucked at math. Nobody ever gave me support with math. There was no, like, special ed, small pull-out group or somebody worked with me one-on-one. It was basically just like, we're going to give you a D minus so you can pass on to the next grade. So I just always struggled with math. Always, always, always. And uh, chemistry was like second period. So I just slept through that. But the teacher didn't care. I think he kind of liked that I slept. Um, and that was high school. You know, the, the incessant inability of those teachers, you know, like looking back on it, like those were adults shaming a child, like starting in elementary school, you know, and I don't have much patience for that. You know, I don't, as an adult teacher, I didn't as a child, um, but school was really, really traumatic for me. Like I felt like I was going to prison every day, you know, like it didn't feel good you know the problems content you know like i always knew the principal of every school i was in you know i was quite frequently in the principal's office because teachers would just get like annoyed you know they would to this day like knowing when maslow's hierarchy of needs and knowing that those people knew about different learning styles and the way that they handled it you know i had a just a brutally cruel sophomore English teacher, which was horrible, because I loved all the books we read sophomore year, like 1984 and Animal Farm, but she was just mean. And she would like socially bully me in front of the entire class. Like, I remember she said like, she called me socially retarded in front of a group of students and in front of a group of 15 year olds. Um, and that was kind of the thing, you know, and at some point you know i started fighting back and that would get me into the principal's office more and more because these teachers would say these things and i'm like i'm not taking this shit from you you know you're a hypocrite i see all the ways that you're inconsistent and i'm not going to sit here and take it um so that was high school was just tough thank god for weed weed and getting my license and skateboarding really saved my life there um And so once I was, that was kind of like the 1st we I'll say this is three parts. That's kind of the first part. And a lot of those teachers, you know, I think just were unforgivably cruel. You know, they had this idea that, uh, you know, students acting out were doing it to get attention, which may have been true, you know, at a certain age. I'm not going to put it past me. I wanted attention because I wasn't getting good attention because nobody taught me how to succeed. But having taught students and learning, getting a master's in special ed, nobody wants to fail in school. You know, every kid is terrified of what the adults tell them, which is if you don't do well here, you're going to die alone in a river. You know, you're going to be poor, you're going to be broke, you won't get a job. Like, no student wants to fail. Maybe like a, a small, small handful of extremely, you know, traumatized people who have, you know, pathological behavioral conditions tiny tiny percentage don't want to succeed but i would say even they do they just you know it's just been longer or their behaviors are more entrenched like mean, nobody doesn't want to succeed and so for teachers to you know shame you or pathologize or assassinate your character regularly at some point you start believing that you know as a child uh you know that's you're not with your parents a lot after you go to school in the first grade. You spend more time with the teachers, and most of them were brutally reinforcing this idea that I was stupid, that I was uh, attention seeking, that I was a problem, um, that I had character defects. And it was pretty rough, honestly, you know. And that's why I kind of just checked out in high school. I'm like, well, this is just, you know, let's just get through this, and I'll go sort this out on the backside once I get free. Which I did. Um, So I didn't have a good enough grades after high school to get into college. So I I needed to go to community college to get my grades up. But in a community college where there's a lot more freedom, they treat you with respect and dignity, uh, I got like all B's. I, I got my grades up. I was able to get into a major a major college uh i got into ohio state and i I struggled quite a bit early on at ohio state you know it was just kind of too much freedom at once i didn't have the academic skills to know how to manage my time this is like where my adhd i think really kind of kicked back up it's like it was just too many options and i couldn't you know the executive functioning of planning wasn't there um I got my diagnosis as a child, so I got extended time on tests. I was able to take tests alone in rooms, so I didn't have, you know, the overstimulation out the windows or too many people in a room. I found test-taking super stressful. I just, I was obsessed with, like, how's everybody else doing? You know, I could not focus. Even if I knew the material, I could not think. There was just too many people in a room, and it was a high-pressure situation. I was just obsessed with, like, the social dynamics of that moment. Uh... And so, having been so poor at math and never receiving any support for either the ADHD or whether it was the dysgraphia, I have a bit of dyslexia that I figured out as an adult. I just switched the order of words and sentences and letters and words. Um, I can. I've learned how to overcome it by slowing down when I read, but quite frequently, I, you know, I was driving home from utah this week and i saw this word it's called dotstero and it doesn't matter how many times like i have to really slow down to put the d before that the t before the s um my brain wants to call it dostero and even i'll read it and my brain is going dostero and i'm looking at the t and the s in the order but my brain still uh messes up like it re- reorders the sounds and so in college i uh I just didn't think of myself as a good student and I had to take these math classes to get my to be able to get my prereqs done but I basically had to take the lowest math classes that they offered at Ohio State and I failed the first one twice and on the third try if you don't pass it you're just done which basically means you can't get a degree um so I worked really hard started going to the study rooms started understanding that there was people to help and then uh Yeah, I, I, I started incrementally getting better at math, but it took a ton of work, a ton, a ton, a ton, a ton, a ton of work. Um, and then my sophomore year, I took a geology class that, like, really sparked my interest. Like, I had no clue that volcanoes created land, you know, all the stuff that I missed in high school or elementary school. Uh I was just blown away by the earth and mountains and that you know the himalayas were the youngest mountains and the appalachians were the oldest and i was like i want to be a geologist but to be a geologist you had to take math and so my learning disability really came up with my desire to do something you know i was obsessed with geology i just like the same way i was with the spy stuff i just couldn't read enough about it this was like a 101 geology class but it was enough to get me to be like okay well i'm gonna get through calculus if this is what i need to do and so i i got through my algebra one my algebra two and i got into trigonometry and i was like it was just so hard it was like pushing everything i had um but i just was so i was like you know there's no reason why i can't get this people just aren't explaining it to me in a way that i understand it you know i know i'm smart there's just a way that you know, people are using the same model to teach somebody who's different. So I need to figure out how to tell them I, I don't get this. So I was just this like annoying college student who would go to the math help rooms at Ohio State. I'd just sit there and be like, okay, next person, send them over. You didn't, I don't understand how you explained it. Uh, five people explained it to me the same way. You're not helping me understand it. And I really started to learn how I learned. You know, the way that I learned is top down like i need to understand the big picture and then walk me back through the parts and like once i had a math tutor help me that way i got like a b plus in trigonometry i had a b in calculus um and this kind of like this image that i had you know so wholeheartedly believed about myself right i have adhd and i can't do math well that just fell away because i could do math And I could sit and focus on math. I actually liked doing math. I just didn't like failing at it over and over. Nobody likes not knowing how to do something and being asked to do it over and over and over again without any support. And I started to realize I just didn't have any support. Like None of my teachers took the time in elementary school to help me, whether they had the time or not. I don't remember a lot of kindness going around in my schools from the teachers. but that was, like, huge. It really destroyed, you know, I had this self-image that I think so many of us who are neurodivergent get is that we're dumb or we can't do it or we're, like, incapable. And so we kind of have all these self-limiting beliefs. And I tell you what, getting a B in calculus smashed all of those. I was like, I can do fucking anything. I got a B in calculus. I've never in my life worked harder at anything. Um, and I'm so glad I did because, like, it really made me believe that, with the right support, the right motivation, I can be engaged and learn anything. There's nothing I can't do. And my grades after that moment incrementally improved in college. You know, I got, I got like an A plus in linguistics, like a lot of complicated classes that I would have had a really hard time with when I was younger. I started to succeed, in I knew how to go see the teacher for support. I learned how to self-advocate. I learned how to tell them I don't want to move on until I understand this piece. Because if I get, I learned this pretty thoroughly. You know, if you have ADHD or neurodivergence, or we're in special ed in the '80s, it's like they just keep moving on. They don't they don't stop and slow down for you. And modern education is really similar. Um, and so, yeah, I was able in, in college to self-advocate. You know, be able to take tests in rooms with extended time, uh, more frequent breaks, a lot of the things I was able to give my students that are really helpful for people. Um, And so I graduated college. Wasn't pretty, but I got it done. I crushed all the classes I was interested in, probably got C's and all the rest. Um, Yeah, and then just kind of, you know didn't didn't really think too much about my the way I was learning you know I another thing that was happening happening adjacently you know that was really helping blow up this idea that I couldn't focus on things and this kind of image that I'd been given from my parents and from teachers about being ADHD was that I was throughout college I was building houses and building houses requires a lot of math eventually I learned how to read blueprints and cut rafters and do all kinds of really cool stuff um but I was engaged all day long you know it wasn't like they were like hey go go nail off that roof and they'd find me you know block away looking at a tree I don't I needed to be able to move my body while I was learning and so like I really excelled at building houses I learned stuff really quickly I like was promoted pretty quickly got way more responsibility and by the time I was like In my early 20s, I was like running crews of grown men on job sites, you know, reading blueprints and telling them what to do, you know, doing math, doing geometry, uh, which kind of like at a certain point came really naturally to me. Um, but it wasn't that I couldn't focus. It's that I needed to move while, you know, there's a difference between, you know, diagnosable ADHD and being a kinesthetic learner. You know, no one... very few people can sit still and just stare at something all day. Um, do one task, you know. I I need to move around, and moving around and doing math, it was like everything just clicked. You know, I could understand it. my body. I understand. I understood it from the top down. Like we're trying to get this house built. What are the small pieces of math that are going to lead us to having a house with a roof on it and windows in it, everything level and plumb and so that was really reshaping the way i saw myself i'm like i can focus and i can do math and uh yeah i carried that on i decided i didn't want to i just wanted to keep building houses after college so i just kept doing that lived a pretty moved to colorado lived a pretty nice life um yeah and i just fast forward up until getting my master's so i worked in construction off and on for 10 years uh didn't really like you know my life suited my my brain you know i could move around i've worked on different jobs every week different people different rooms different problems to solve and i was you know engaged with my life you know i could work a full day Uh, the diagnosis that they had given me wasn't impacting my life you know like maybe i wasn't the best at managing my money but nobody had taught me how to do that either it wasn't like an inherent neurological problem it was a lack of guidance from teachers and parents um still had some problems with some executive function functioning things um but then fast forward to getting my master's and like getting educated about this and this will kind of bring us home with the the contemplation and reflection um so i'm getting my master's i'm working a job i'm student teaching going to class and i'm like you know what i need What's really going to help me So I need some more ADHD medicine because <laughs> I know how that shit works. And so I started, uh, I went to my doctor. I got a prescription for Vyvanse, which is a time-release amphetamine. Um, but while I was, I was doing that, it would really help. You know, I could write 20-page papers, just sit down, bang it out, get it done. Uh, you know, speed helps you sit and focus. Um, but I, I started noticing as an adult, like, the side effects. The side effects were agitation. Uh, temper, paranoia, um, and I was like, you know, I, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll do this to get through this master's program because this is insane. But like, I don't want to keep taking this. Like, this stuff isn't good for me. Um, and so I got my master's, and while I was getting my master's, I was observing students, and that led me to kind of reflect about myself. And working in schools, I started noticing. That a lot of things that are symptomatically similar to ADHD could be any number of things. And like, we really don't ever know exactly what's going on. I think there was this huge trend in the 80s and 90s to really diagnose and pathologize people. Like, you have this diagnosis. Well, I started noticing that trauma, you know, really manifests itself symptomatically, like ADHD, like, have a hard time sitting still have a hard time paying attention. So people have experienced intense trauma um, or, you know, grow up in an alcoholic household like I did. They have a hard time focusing in school because they're trying they don't feel safe socially or emotionally because they don't feel safe socially or emotionally at home. And so they're always reading the room. They're they're always thinking about what's going on socially and the work doesn't seem like a life or death thing, you know, when you're a child of an alcoholic You grew up in an alcoholic family system. Your emotional centers are online all the time, you know, because you're always trying to read the threat level, get love and affection, get food, shelter. You don't want to, you know, we don't want to upset the the biology of the family organism. So those students go to school and it looks like they have ADHD, but they really don't. They have trauma needs that once that healing is done, they're able to sit and focus and do their work. And so i really started doing a lot of reflection about myself and what i found inside myself is that i i do have some symptomatic things that are very much adhd like uh, i've done podcasts on transitions before transitions are emotionally really hard for me like i get really dysregulated when i'm moving from one task to another it's hard for me to switch between tasks um, I kind of have learned behaviorally like I need a buffer task in between things so in between taking the dogs on a run this morning and doing this podcast I need to clean my apartment I can't just like go from the dogs to doing this, I need some buffer I so struggling with transitions is something that, but I've also learned a lot of behavioral approaches around that, you know, I'm able to Take deep breaths on either side of a transition. I'm able to pause for ten seconds when I arrive someplace before I settle down. Um, which also could be symptomatic of trauma, right? Like humans who experience environmental trauma quite frequently when they shift locations, it's hard for them because they don't know what to expect, and they like half their, their nervous system is having to read a whole new environment to see if it's safe. Um I came to really believe when I was getting my masters that like some shit just sucks to focus on. You know, like nobody wants to focus on doing their taxes or you know some stuff's just hard. There's like certain things that are just less engaging for humans. But like because our school system is so production oriented and test oriented that We expect humans to focus on things that aren't that interesting and do tasks that they never have to do in the real world. Um, I really noticed that to be true, that like I can sit down and do my taxes like anybody else and I've got an average amount of attention while I'm doing my taxes. It's not like I'll do my taxes then watch 20 minutes of YouTube videos and be like, oh, I don't know what happened. Doing your taxes just isn't good Um, So as I I was teaching, I started noticing that, like, these behavioral supports, right, like that we would give students with these diagnoses, right, like give them a chair they can rock in while they do their work or give them regular, you know, bathroom breaks or movement breaks. Uh, Fidget toys. Let them listen to music. I remember in high school getting so much shit for wanting to put my hood up and it was because the visual stimulation field was too much like if i had my hood on i could focus way more but then i was demonized and told i was a bad kid or like a thug for wanting to wear my hood when actually i was just trying to decrease the amount of stimulation i didn't have the words for it as a teenager but when i was getting my master's i was like we give we put kids in blinders or study carols they can focus on a lot of things let them wear their hoods or listen to music Uh, I started to learn that there's a lot of behavioral supports that I can use uh, to mitigate my attention problems. Um, And the, the confusing thing about attention deficit disorder, hyperactive disorder, and trauma, is that both of them express as difficulty in executive functioning. So your frontal lobe develops differently. Your ability to prioritize tasks is challenging. Um, your ability to transition from task to task is challenging um, in both both cases. And so I think w- where I've kind of landed is, sure, I could have ADHD. I could be in the neurological 10%. I doubt it. You know, I don't think I need medication to live or regulate my emotions. I can primarily take care of most of the challenges I have with attention um, with behavioral supports. And the behavioral supports I use today, you know, really stem from a certain amount of self-awareness. You know, like, I know that I can't focus in a room with overhead lighting. And there's been tons of studies that, like, the fluorescent lights that were in schools that uh, were in the schools that I grew up in, they're horribly aggravating for people. Like, they they totally disrupt our nervous systems. Um You know, that's why I like to wear a hood. You know, there's tons of studies around that. Um, And so my house doesn't have any overhead lighting. I have a lot of soft lighting. It helps me calm down. When I'm calm, I can focus. Nobody can focus when they're wound up or they don't feel safe, um, physically or emotionally. So environmental things, you know, keep my apartment really clean. I know it's really important for me not to have clutter. Um, If I have clutter... It's harder for me to focus on tasks. That's why before I do this podcast every week, I clean my apartment because that helps me sit down, focus on the topic, keep a stream of consciousness going. So What are some other ones? Some really great ones are, you know, movement. I need to exercise pretty regularly. I need to get up and move around. I need to take walks throughout the day. I need to, I, I'm sitting on a stool that rocks, that makes me engage my core. Uh, use that while I'm working. Um, now that we have you know Spotify and iTunes and YouTube, there are tons of focus, like binaural beats, things that stimulate b- both hemispheres of your brains. Listening to binaural beats while you're uh, reading really helps. Um, what else? Oh, rewards. Rewards are great. I don't know why I didn't think of this earlier. Rewards, you know? None of us work for free. You know, giving myself small incremental rewards for completing tasks is still really important. That dopamine circuit in your brain. Uh, what else? Breathing. You know, I, I think a huge, there was like a huge physiological component to my inability to pay attention. So when I was born, my nose was broken. I broke my nose again in second grade. I broke my nose again in third grade. I broke my nose again in seventh grade um i may have said seventh grade twice second seventh second third seventh anyhow young i was born i was two i walked in front of a kid swinging i was three i caught a soccer ball with my face i was in seventh grade i ran into a door and so i couldn't breathe through my nose that entire time and now there's tons of research out about breathing and focus the physiology of it like i couldn't I remember after I got this surgery when I was 25 to fix my septum, and I finally took my first breath in, I don't know, 25 years through my nose, I was like, oh my God, is that what brains feel like? You know, I felt like a different experience. So, mindful breathing, you know, kind of breathing as a second attention while I'm focusing on something, I'm also kind of loosely focusing on the quality of my breath, um... You know, because this system is is so complex, you know, it's, I think the, the big damage that was done to me in my early education was they made it a character flaw, you know, when, you know, and some of the ignorance I can, you know, they didn't know about the physiology and the neuroscience information wasn't out there, but they made it a character flaw, like you were a bad kid, you know, you're a bad apple. that's just not true you know I haven't met any bad apples Um, the science of attention the physiology of your body you know the food you're eating you know the amount of exercise the amount of sleep you're getting you know I had insomnia respiratory issues grew up in an alcoholic household and teachers Decided that the best solution to that was to pathologize me and diagnose me with ADHD instead of looking at any of the other environmental things that might have been causing that. And so I'm I'm really leery in my my personal life, you know, to label anybody, you know, uh, to self-label because I think there's so many moving parts that. I've just noticed for so many of the students I've worked with, and myself, and other people I've talked to, getting those diagnoses like they can be super helpful. They can give you a lens through which to see the world, They can give you a lot of tools. Uh, and some people, you know, some people do need the biological support. They need they need the, the, the chemical thing to scaffold them to learn the behavioral pro, the protocols that you need to manage your life. Um, But the gripe I have is I was medicated and not given any behavioral support and basically told that I was just broken. And I just think that's bullshit. And so uh, now that we know more, and this next podcast will really dive into this, you know, what are the behavioral things that we can do to improve our attention? You know, I know for me, like not touching my phone for the first hour of the day, the last hour of the day, unplugging really helps my brain chemistry uh, exercising, eating, sleep, hydration, all of those things. And then there's some days that are just fuck off days that your brain doesn't want to focus. And I think that's totally normal. I think that, you know, capitalism expects us to be able to focus and pay attention all the time. And we can't, that's unreasonable. You know, nobody I talk to works eight straight hours a day for 40 hours a week. Just doesn't happen. You work really hard for like three or four, you kind of fuck off the rest. Um, And so I think that experience for me really led me to, I believe that, you know, where you can, you know, try the behavioral things. Uh, If you have a diagnosis and we're pathologized and have a negative self-image based off of a diagnosis, my heart goes out to you. I have done so much work to heal that inside myself, to see myself as capable, not broken. I actually have a phenomenal brain. I love my brain. Uh, I love the connections it can make. I like the wormholes. I like daydreaming sometimes. Just, you know, learning the behavioral stuff to be able to focus when you need to. And so, yeah, I think that's kind of it for this one. Kind of an overarching history of my experience with ADHD. Um, You know, there's so many things we know now that we didn't know then or that, you know, and we just have different attitudes there was just a lot of just a lot of jerks in education in the 80s and 90s I don't you know it's a much different world the schools I taught in, even the the hardest teachers to work with were more understanding because the culture has changed because our our awareness has changed because at some point you know someone was like we should stop being mean to children and honestly that's you know the walk away from my childhood is I, they're the handful of really good teachers but a lot of those educators were just mean to children and they took their shit out on me and so Julie Goldstein I don't forgive you um, some of these other teachers who were just really cruel you know socially bullies you know I had a lot of teachers who were just bullies and uh, I don't think that's okay and so if you've suffered from attention stuff or like any of us you know with social media the number of things we have to do in a day the number of demands on us in this late stage capitalism world you know my heart just goes out to you and i hope that you can find some behavioral supports to to help to help with attention so that you can focus when you want to you can focus on the things that are important to you and you can start to heal your own brain because i really this is a huge walk away the The more work I've done on this, either with with therapists or my own reflection as a teacher, uh, you know, becoming the age some of those teachers were and being like, how could you have treated a student like that? That's just cruel. You know, maturation, it's really given me a a lot of perspective, but I also really think it's rewired my brain and allowed me to step into a place of neuroplasticity where I've been able to heal a lot of that stuff uh, and just in, you know, with meditation and yoga, increase my self-awareness, you know, sometimes I'm not going to be able to focus. I could have eaten the wrong thing. My body could be having a reaction to something. It could be dehydrated, but I know what it feels like when it's just not a, a, a neurological option or when I know I need to break thing into five things in a five minute increments and then take a break five more minutes, take a break. Um, so yeah, I hope uh, I hope that was I hope that was helpful. Uh, this this podcast has really made me reflect about my experience as a student and the messages I got about my own brain. And I just don't let anybody tell you about your own brain. No one's going to be able to know it or figure it out better than you. You know, it's hard enough for us to figure out our own brains, but having somebody else tell you who you are or how you work is just rude. It's it's abusive and. It's not okay so good luck getting to know your own brain i hope this was uh this little walk down down memory lane was was enjoyable for you you know i hope that if you have children or thinking about having children you know like be kind to kids you know most of the teachers i had weren't kind um Yeah, I think, I think I'm going to leave you there. I think that the next podcast I'll talk a little bit more about uh, the symptomatic expression of trauma and autism and ADHD and kind of where we're at today. Uh, but it's just a really confusing soup, you know. A lot of those things have a lot of symptomatic overlaps. So thank you so much for listening. This is a crowdfunded, listener-supported podcast. I uh, can't tell you what it means to have all you listeners. Thank you so much to all my patrons. Thank you so much people who reach out let me know the episode was good or if you have questions so please like subscribe, share really helps really really helps any of that social media any any little word of mouth thing and if you're feeling inspired and you want to become a patron you can go to my patreon page www.patreon.com forward turning of the bones and for if you, if you were like that was great I would buy you a cup of coffee or buy you a beer. Or uh, buy you a taco or a burrito. Head over to Patreon. uh, Become a monthly patron. Five, ten bucks a month. It really helps. And yeah. If you can't, don't worry about it. Keep listening. I love you all. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you for listening. Take care of yourselves. Be well. Bye now.